There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have a car stop in Tampa Ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, and I want to wish everyone tonight a very, very happy Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2023. I hope you took care of your significant other with a, a special day, chocolates, flowers, however you show your affection, take them out to dinner. Well, if you're out to dinner, I hope you're watching us. But I want everyone to have a wonderful Valentine's Day, especially all the Police Off the Cuff family, our subscribers, our friends, our fans. We really hold you deep and close to our heart. You know, tonight, folks, we're going to talk a little bit more. It seems like almost every possible thing's been covered on the Idaho quadruple murder case. But however, new things keep coming out, or at least not necessarily new evidence or new stories that you haven't heard, but a new... Um, a new way of looking at things, perhaps. And one of the things that we're, we're hearing about of, of late is that DM, who is, of course, the roommate, one of the surviving roommates, um, one of the reasons it's being said now, and I'm not sure if I 100% buy this reason, is that she thought that there, she had heard noise upstairs, but there was a loud party going on. And she thought nothing of it. So you can imagine... Of course, this was a loud party house, had a history of that. But And then when she had some male walk by her, the one with the bushy eyebrows, she didn't think anything of it. She didn't think that it was anything out of the usual. But we're going to go explore that a little bit more and explore some other little pieces of evidence that are starting to drip out there just slowly because, as we know, the case has sort of slowed to a crawl because of a gag order issued by the judge. And until that gag order is either released or we get closer to June 26th, which is going to be the first day of the probable cause hearings, which may number five in number. There may be five days of hearings on the probable cause. Until that time, we're sort of relying on what maybe Ashley Banfield refers that sources close to the investigation, which I do not totally trust at all. I don't trust it at all, to tell you the truth. But it seems that there's been leaks in this case right from the very beginning. I know that there were FBI agents going on a lot of the broadcast stations from the very beginning. And they had information that we didn't have. And it turned out in the beginning, it was referred to as rumor but these rumors, guess what? They turned out later on to be very true. So I think that certain law enforcement people have leaks inside this investigation, and perhaps uh, News Nation is getting some of these leaks and doing shows on that, and which we in turn are using some of that information, but trying to vet that information by qualifying it by saying, we don't take this information to be 100% accurate. But as you know, 
Again, we'll get back to the gag order. There's no real new information coming out. So we're going to do as best we can and use our knowledge and our experience to dissect some of the things and some of the pieces of the evidence and some of the things we know about law enforcement and the prosecution of murders and the collection of evidence. We're going to use all of that and we're going to try to give you the best possible show we can. Joining me tonight uh, is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I want to wish a very happy Valentine's Day to all our uh, subscribers, our fans, and our friends. Without you guys, there would be no police off the cuff. Uh, thank you for being our loyal fans, and hope everybody's having a great night. And if you guys are in Brooklyn, Phil sends out ganolis to his Valentines. But uh, that's right. <laughs> he can't. He can't afford all that postage to send it. With all a little heart on it. Uh, with a little heart on. That's right. And also tonight. We have retired NYPD sergeant and a recent fan favorite, uh, Professor Michael Geary. How are you doing tonight, Mike? Good, Billy. Thank you for having me on. It's so it's always know, a pleasure. No. And you know, you, uh, Phil, I'm going to go to you first. You heard what I was talking about that yep. the the uh, roommate DM, who's one of the surviving roommates, and now that this new sort of theory that she thought there was a uh, a party upstairs and that she didn't put two and two together that something horrendous ha had happened. And that's right now what, what they're saying. What do you think? Well, right off the bat, Billy, uh, I don't like leaks in any type of investigation or any case. And uh, when there's a gag order in place, I would hope it's strictly adhered to. However, with this particular leak, uh, DM allegedly told investigators that uh, she heard noises, uh, she was trying to sleep, and she opened her door, which was closed, and she called out to the other roommates, calm down, you're being loud, I'm trying to sleep. She closes the door and then locks it. Now, obviously, this is allegedly, we don't have this coming from law enforcement sources. Uh, this was uh, broadcast by Ashley Banfield Show and other news outlets. And then after hearing more noise, she opens the door a second time and she allegedly sees the killer. He walks past her and exit through the rear sliding glass doors. Now, she described this, the killer as being clad in black clothing and a mask. Uh, she goes back to bed apparently waking up several hours later, and that's when they discover the victims in the case and they call 911. Now, uh, based on what we knew about DM prior to this being leaked, now, if it's true to me, it sounds like the most logical explanation uh, that could be, uh, you know, put forward regarding the lack of uh, of uh, the, the the period of time and the lack of calling 911 in a timely fashion. There's about an eight-hour uh, period of time where the murders take place and the police aren't called until 11.57 in the morning, I believe it is. So it's from a little after four in the morning to a little before noontime, about eight hours. Now, I've said before, the only person that can answer that question is DM. And if this is true, I like this scenario best. Uh, obviously it's a Saturday night going into a Sunday morning. It's a frat house type atmosphere. We know what kids do in college on a Saturday night. They drink. So if you take all of the components of what we know previously, there were two different times when police were called. We saw the body camera. 
video from the uh, body-worn cameras on the police officers that responded. It appeared that there was loud parties going on. It appeared that there were many people in the house. So again, for her to mistake loud noises, and obviously we know now that it was the loud noises of possibly a, a killer fight between uh, the killer and the victims. And I'll say it was BK because I do believe that he was the uh, the killer in this case. So it could be mistaken for party noises. She sees a person clad in a, a dark clothing with a mask. Perhaps she thinks it's some type of a prank. Again, she could have been half asleep, maybe intoxicated. All of those things do sound very logical to me. Now, I know, Billy, you said you don't put a lot of validity into this story. Based on where it's coming from, it's being leaked. And I get that. But again... Uh, the conspiracy theories ran wild in the beginning when, uh, you know, everybody said, oh, the roommates are involved. The roommates are involved. They didn't call the police for eight hours. I think that this is probably the best scenario that's been put forward regarding that period of time where the police weren't called. Mike, same question. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, Phil's right. Um, it's probably the fact that because she's, uh, you know, DM and the other roommate, uh, I think BF, um, this is a party house. There's a lot going on on weekends. There's a lot of fun. She, they got home earlier uh, than um, Bogle and you know everyone else and and Gonsalves, and they probably were woken up by noise. Now they some of the noise that they could have heard was them coming in, maybe uh, someone having TikTok video on. It could have you know been that sort of thing. Um, but the stories now about you know thinking it's a party. I don't see that as derogatory in any way towards uh, DM. Um, that's not, uh, that would not be unusual for a party. So yeah, for a kid who's woken up in the middle of the night after they've been asleep for maybe an hour or two and they've had a lot to drink and they hear noises, um, they might be saying, yeah, look, please, guys, hold it down. Go right back to bed. I could understand that. It's nothing derogatory or, or negative about her. That was her perceptions. Um, if in fact, that's true. I I don't have any problem with it whatsoever. And I don't think it says anything bad about BK. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, the, uh, DM. DM, at, DM or uh, BF uh, at all. And it's probably the most logical explanation. And, and that's it. Well, Mike, I'm going to play a little bit of this video. We'll shed a little more light on it. The roommate referred to as DM in the probable cause affidavit told the source that she thought noises she heard were from people in the house partying late into the night. The house on King Road was known for having lots of people in and out at all hours. Four people were stabbed to death inside of that home in November where two roommates actually survived. Now, DM, one of those roommates, told police that she opened her bedroom door at one point and saw a man walking by her wearing all black and a mask. She told the source that she thought he must be one of the, a guest of one of the other roommates. He walked right past her and she looked, locked herself in a room. Now, no one called 911 until lunchtime the next day. Police ended up arresting Brian Koberger, a doctoral student at nearby Washington State University, more than a month after the murder, saying he was the man who committed the brutal stabbings. DM's memory now seems to be a bit different from what she told investigators because in her latest recollection, she wasn't frightened by the random man in the hallway. But you know what? Memory can be a tricky thing. So we spoke with an expert about how memories can change over time. Well, you don't need a PhD to know that. You know, I just want to mention something to you. It's, this is true. Um, memories do change. However, what, you know, what's most important is 
how you remember it the day you raise your right hand in a court of law and testify that what you say is the truth, all the truth and nothing but the truth. So help you God. That is the most important thing. However, the credibility of a witness can be severely impinged by the fact that whatever statement she made is memorialized right now on paper the state and signed off signed off on in her handwriting by her so will that statement that was taken by the police on the, the day of the murders and the testimony she undoubtedly will give when this case goes to trial will that jive and that's what is a big question that as time passes our, our memories begin to fade uh they become weaker um, but what's not so much a matter of common sense is that that weakening memory that's fading uh, with the passage of time becomes more and more vulnerable to potential contamination. And contamination can happen when you get suggestive uh, information from other sources. If you're questioned in a biased or uh, leading fashion, uh, if you overhear other people talk about what happened, it can affect you. But it, it, we also can uh, alter our own memories. That's called auto-suggestion. We think about what might have happened, what probably happened, what could have happened, and sometimes those what could have uh, become what did. And we've also learned that suspect Brian Koberger was experiencing some workplace drama around the time of the murders. He, he was apparently fired from his position as a teaching assistant at WSU. News Nation. I don't want to get. I don't want to move on to that yet. I want to talk about this. So, Billy, could I make a quick point about what we were just talking about? There was a law enforcement source that was unnamed, but early on, and said that the delay in notifying the police puzzled investigators, and they believed it to be an issue of intoxication or fear. Now, that was a statement that was put out uh, pretty early on by an unnamed, obviously an unnamed law enforcement source. So, again, they they were putting that intoxication and fear factor into the, uh, you know, the realm of possibilities from early on. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things have changed. That's why I'm not, um, you know, until we get what really the story is and the correct story coming from, from the horse's mouth, from the police department, from the investigators, from the district attorney's office. And there's people in the chat right now that said, Hey, the police have put out misinformation too. And I don't, I mean, I don't look in the beginning of this case, there was tons of misinformation because too many people were talking to the press and there wasn't one single uh, communication uh, communicator for law enforcement till Chief Fry took that role later on. But before he took that role, there was a lot of conflicting information, a lot of uh, correct from whoever said that in the chat, a lot of misinformation. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, Billy, um, I'm not really worried about the uh, slight differences in what DM might have uh, talked to the police about and their impressions. Yeah, obviously, she was probably uh, hungover uh, from the effects of intoxication. And what she told the police, she was, she was in shock because, you know, they got there a short period of time after the bodies were discovered. So the, in the excitement and everything else, she's going to make statements and, and they're recorded. Later on, um, when they talk to her, this, the, you know, the statement is probably maybe a little bit better, a little bit more coherent. And, and that's that's really no problem. 
it, the only problem I see would see is if between the now and then uh, the probable cause hearing and then um, at the trial, um, if there's a huge total sea change in what DM would say. But I don't see the prosecutor having a problem with, um, you know, putting DM in front of the judge and probable cause hearing or at the trial and going over her prior statements and letting her explain, you know, what she was thinking at the moment and how she processed it. And, you know, the leaks, unfortunately, um, fuel speculation and that's unprofessional and that shouldn't have happened at all. You know, someone in the chat just said, so it's okay to wait eight hours as long as you were in shock. No, I don't think it's okay. No. I'm not saying yeah. it's okay to wait no. eight hours. No. If she's, if what she's saying is true, then she didn't understand that there were murders in the house. I, I don't totally buy that. I'm with you, MK, in the chat. I'm not totally buying that. So is it okay? No, if you know your roommates are murdered, no, it's not okay to wait eight hours for anyone that was that, that potentially could have been murdered. But if we believe what she's saying, and I'll play another video here, that she believes that there was a big party going on. I tell you, um, it certainly does give a little bit more perspective as to why she didn't call 911 right away, perhaps. <clears throat> We're told that Dylan actually mistook the noises that she'd been hearing. Remember, the affidavit said that around 4 a.m. she could hear some noises up on the third floor, thought it was maybe, uh, you know, Kaylee um, playing with the dog Murphy, um, didn't think a lot more than that. But ultimately, a few moments later, she heard a lot of noises. She opened her door and effectively kind of yelled out to her roommates, calm down, like cut it out, keep it down. You guys are being loud. I'm trying to sleep. It's late. Thinking that there were roommates horsing around that perhaps all that noise that she was hearing was just them, you know, being boisterous and still in party mode. It was late, late Saturday night, early Sunday morning. So she then closed her door and went back to bed, but within minutes, perhaps sort of roused again by noise, um, opens the door again, was going to say something again to the effect of keep it down already. It's the middle of the night. And that's when she sees the figure coming towards her. Now, this has been a big bone of contention for a lot of people. Why, if you saw some shadowy, terrifying figure walking towards you, would you just close your door and go back to bed and not call the police? And the characterization to the source who spoke directly with her after the murders is that she didn't think that that figure was anything She's saying she didn't think it was anything but someone that was leaving the party that had been upstairs partying with the rest of the students. So um, whether we we buy this or not is um, I'm not sure I do, but um, that's this is a bone of contention here. Let me remove this from the screen. Do we believe that? Do we believe that she really thought that this was just a party, that this was someone that had been at the party upstairs? Is it possible? I think it is quite possible. Do I believe it? I don't believe anything until I hear it from the person that's going to make the statement or if it comes from law enforcement. So again, we have to take everything with a grain of salt. Um, that person that made the comment in the chat saying that oh, it's okay to wait eight hours because you're in shock. No, obviously not. But a lot of things may not be as they appear. For instance, Hoodie Guy. When Hoodie Guy video was released by the food truck, a 10-second clip of Hoodie Guy in the very early stages of this case showed someone looking very, very suspicious to both you and I, Bill, and I'm sure to you, Sergeant yeah. Mike, 
when we saw the full context of the video, then it appeared he was interacting with people and he walked off and it didn't seem quite as suspicious as it did with that just 10 second clip. That was something that was taken out of context. So again, if we don't know what she told investigators when she was interviewed, we can assume, wow, this eight hour period. Oh, all of these other conspiracy theories can, you know, grow out of that. But uh, unless you had what she said to the investigators in front of you, then that might satisfy you. And the police seem to have been satisfied very early on to say that they didn't believe her DM or the other roommate were involved in the murder. You know, folks, just so you know, um, I've supervised hundreds and hundreds, you know, probably two, 300, 400 murders. And I've watched some of the best detectives take statements uh, from people. And I've read the statements and I've signed off on the cases. And it, if you ever take a statement from someone, the, the truth doesn't come out immediately. It has to go, be gone over and gone over and gone over. Sometimes the detectives use a technique of starting at the end and coming back to the beginning because it's very difficult to lie if, you, if they use that technique. There's all different types of interviewing and interrogation techniques. However, once they do take the statement, it's not done in like 10 minutes or 45 minutes. It, it takes hours and hours to take an accurate statement. And the statement is gone over and over and it's read back to the person that gives the statement. And any inaccuracies or anything that the, the person that gives the statement wants to change, the detective has them initial where they want the change to be made and the change is made. So it's a defense attorney could argue, oh, what's these initials? That's these the initial of the uh, of the witness saying that that wasn't accurate and I changed it to this and this is accurate. I just wanted that to be known that I didn't change that, that the witness changed that. So what efforts gone over and gone over and gone over, hopefully at that point, you have the accurate information. But look, this this is a a crazy case, you know, and what did the detectives find out? What we're getting a lot now of, and people are asking in the chat, oh, when did this just come out? Some of this stuff is coming out unofficially. It's coming out by sources close to the investigation. So can we depend on that? I don't think so. Mike, what do you think? You know, you're going to, as you know, as you, me and Phil know, when, when you get a, a homicide scene or something, some violent criminal act that takes place, the, some of the people are going to be in shock. And um, she was probably interviewed, obviously, very early on. The moment the police got there, the police are going to ask preliminary questions. What's going on? Who called? What did you see? She made statements. This is what I know. Uh, the, the officer probably recorded it in his memo book. The detectives are going to come talk to her again. And that at that point, that's when Bill... You get in there, and Phil, you get in there, and you start going over the you start going over the uh, scenario, what they saw, what they heard, what times, what do they perceive, why do they do certain things, and that and that statement is uh, going to be maybe an hour, or two, or three hours, or four hours after a patrol officer or patrol sergeant like me has gotten on the scene and actually have gotten uh, some sort of preliminary, quick preliminary indications from the witness. Um, you know, it just seems rather strange, and I think it's strange too, but considering the late night, um, the reputation of the house, uh, the intoxica intoxicants that were consumed, um, 
it does seem strange, but I don't think that there's anything nefarious that uh, that the two surviving roommates engaged in whatsoever uh, at all. You know, there's another piece of um, evidence that we're hearing about now that we heard about, but it's, it's getting more of a life to it. And that, of course, is the Bluetooth speaker in Katie Gonzalez uh, in her room. And did Brian Koberger's phone connect to that, e either on the mornings of the murder or in the prior times, the 12 times that he was reconning the house? Did his phone somehow connect to her Bluetooth, to her Wi-Fi? And that is pretty damn powerful evidence. I mean, especially if it connected the mornings of the murder, that would be, to me, extremely, extremely. Uh, when you talk about it, oh, if it was in the recon, you know, an attorney can say, oh, he was just driving around the neighborhood, you know, around the same house. But you know, again, an attorney could create doubt with that, Phil. You know, Billy, the way that these uh, Bluetooth speakers work, once you turn them on, they send the signal out that any Bluetooth-enabled device can now connect to it. Now, if you have your cell phone uh, turned on to where it's in auto-connect mode, you just have to be within the range of that uh, Bluetooth-enabled speaker, and your phone will automatically connect. I believe Wi-Fi works the same way. Now, I know that on my cell phone, I had an incident where I accidentally put it where I would connect to any uh, local Wi-Fi, whatever I was near. And I was in the gym one day, and I was getting spotty service, and it turned out it was because there were so many people in the gym, and the Wi-Fi connection wasn't good. I wound up uh, taking that off on my phone, and I just went right into cellular service, and I was able to connect. So again, a lot of times you could accidentally uh, put your phone in that mode where it'll automatically connect. I believe that might be what uh, Mr. Gonzalez was talking about when he said that uh, BK's phone was picked up uh, on the Wi-Fi in the house. So that might be one of the technical parts of the circumstantial evidence in this case. Whether it was on the recon or the night of the murder is still unclear. We do know that he did shut his phone off. Although certain phones, even in the off mode, might be able to tap into a cell site at different times uh, intermittently. That's something very technical. I don't want to comment on that because I'm not an expert in that field, but I do uh, remember seeing something on the news about that. Even in the off mode, certain phones, I believe like iPhones, can still send out a signal every now and then as long as there's some kind of a charge in the battery, even with the phone off. Dog, on the other hand, Murphy, was put into Kaylee's room most likely by the killer, and closed into that room and discovered there by the police. So our source, who has intimate knowledge of this investigation, um, told us about this Bluetooth speaker. And if you do some of the digital math, if Brian Koberger took his phone into that house, and he very well may have, if he's the killer, he may have thought himself so darn clever that just putting it on airplane mode would mask everything, shut off every single digital piece of footprint. It's on airplane mode. Nobody can see me now. Unless, of course, it reached out to a Bluetooth device. If there were a Bluetooth device nearby, which now we know there was. So I've got a lot of reporting on that and I've got an expert who's gonna walk you through all the steps of why that may or may not work, but the key here is may. 
it just may. So that's just one more critical piece of a prosecution's case. Because if you lose one and you only have one, you may lose it all. Bloody glove. If it don't fit, you must acquit. All sorts of stuff like that happens in a case. The most critical piece of evidence can be denigrated and a jury can be convinced, maybe not reasonably, but they can be convinced that it's not good evidence. So the more the merrier, you might say. A Couple of things that uh, you should know as well. There's something called a handshake that devices actually give out. And when you put your device on airplane mode, this, this is tremendously interesting, uh, the handshake. Um, I didn't know any of this, and I think it is really powerful, powerful evidence. So let's just listen to a little more of this. It doesn't mean you can't connect to Bluetooth. You're not going to reach out to the Wi-Fi. You're not going to reach out to the cell towers. But you can reach out to Bluetooth, and you might not even know it's happening. So if Koberger were driving around in that Elantra, switching it to airplane mode as he got out of Pullman and felt as though it was still in airplane mode as he pulled into Moscow and still in airplane mode, perhaps in his hip pocket as he walked into that house. We got news for you. There's action. Those things actually don't stay dormant. And here's something critical. Early in this investigation, you know, in the first, you know, week plus, when we were still getting public news conferences, the Northwest public broadcasting reporter named Lauren Patterson was sitting in the press corps and she asked a question of the authorities who were conducting the news conference. And man, oh man, did that girl have insight to ask a clever question. Have a look. Curious if the Wi-Fi hotspot has been tapped at all. It's possible if the suspect had their phone on them, it may have pinged off the Wi-Fi in the residence. Has that been checked on at all? As I stated, um, our investigation is looking at every avenue of, of every piece of That question that that woman asked was a couple of days after the murders. That was really a brilliant question that she asked. And uh, I don't even know if the chief at that point had any idea what she was even talking about. However, this is this is really fascinating evidence, this electronic evidence that puts the perpetrator in the house. If they have that evidence, it's extremely, extremely powerful. I don't want to use the term smoking gun. It seems that many people that follow true crime, they don't believe any evidence is powerful. They, you know, but this is powerful, powerful evidence. Mike. Yeah, um, the electronic evidence. Um, since, you know, it doesn't come from human judgment as computers generating this stuff. So it's not tainted by human emotion. And, and you know, as, as a uh, witness statement might be, uh, DNA evidence, that's powerful stuff. It's all scientific. It's all electronic. And if, as Ashley Banfield said, may, do you, you know, you got to keep that, those terms, qualifying terms, if and may, if you do have it and it, and it may have turned on, uh, from his hip pocket, um, and and uh, the Bluetooth has got it registered as being present in that location. That is a beautiful thing for the prosecution. That is absolutely terrific. That's almost like like an elect. Uh, I hate to use the comparison, but it's almost like electronic DNA, a version of DNA. How do you explain that um, sort of thing? That would put uh, Kohlberger in a, in a corner in a real box. But um, keeping our fingers crossed that it did you know, it did get a good reception and it did register his phone at that location 
at that time. That would be really powerful. Absolutely. Phil, you got a comment? Oh, yes, I do. Uh, you know, the standard in uh, the criminal justice system in the United States is uh, beyond the reasonable doubt. So uh, the prosecution is going to put forth, let's say, uh, his cell phone either being present in and around the time of the murder, let's just say for argument's sake. So now defense is going to say, well, just because the phone was there doesn't mean that he was there. And then prosecution might uh, counteract with saying, well, the phone was never reported missing, different things like that. So again, it's got to be reasonable. And to me, it's very reasonable if Brian is in possession of said phone, has never changed phone, didn't report the phone missing, and the phone pings at the location, that's his phone. So to me, that's very reasonable. So we have to get to the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. And a lot of the evidence that we have seen put forward meets that standard, in my opinion. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. We we deliver it from uh, NYPD veterans that have worked these type of cases before. And what we ask is just, if you like this show, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, share us with your friends and your family. And also, if you want to um, support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. You see the folks in the green font. Uh, that's our YouTube channel. Our YouTube channel has five different levels, and the folks in the green font are all subscribers to our YouTube. So this is Police Off the Cuff, and we just appreciate our channel is growing, and uh, we try to cover these cases and not sensationalize them. You know, it is it is amazing some of these things that um, evidentiary how far we've come in the last, you know, 10 years, 15 years. When we spoke to Barbara Butcher, who um, frequently goes on Duty Run show, and is, I always refer to her, she's the retired chief of staff of the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. She said because of 9-11, DNA technology advanced three generations. That's amazing. You'd hate to see another horrific attack on our country for something like that to happen. But during the 9-11 attacks and the afterwards, Science advanced three generations in in just maybe five or ten years, which is just incredible. And and we are reaping the benefits now of those things in, in our current investigations. Mike? Yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention. And when you have a uh, an attack like, like 9-11 and you have all of the um, issues with um, corpse identification and, and things like that, that terrible that you have to go through. Uh, and try to uh, notify loved ones, um, you know, you've got to put, you know, you put everything aside, that becomes priority number one. We see this with combat medicine in Iraq and Afghanistan for our soldiers, you know, sailors, airmen, Marines, you know, that is important. Necessity drives invention so fast. And um, that has been uh, leaked into criminal justice and used by criminal justice. And that's a great thing. It makes the, uh, it gives the ability for the police to uh, really ensure that there's less mistakes made and that the person that they have in custody is surely the right one. Absolutely. MMA admin, it doesn't add up because we don't know the complete story. You've heard us say a million times, we're not privy to the case folder. We're not privy to one of the most important things, and either is the press, the interviews and interrogation of witnesses, the tips that were called in, the eyeball witnesses that saw certain things, the woman being interviewed 
who has the car on video from that gas station. There's so many different pieces of evidence. The interviews, the, the search warrants, we're not privy to anything. You're right. We're trying to fill in the blanks, and we don't have all the blanks to fill in. Basically, what we're doing is we're conjecturing a lot with, you know, using some of the evidence that we do know. But you're right, uh, MMA admin, we don't have all the information, Bill. You know, Billy, I think that once we do get specific things like the autopsy report, which we talked about in the beginning of the show, uh, things like that are going to start to make all the pieces of the puzzle kind of fit together. And, you know, listen, there's going to be challenges in court. There's going to be challenges about whether or not police officers and detectives uh, disturb the crime scene or, you know, compromised evidence and different things like that. But when you sit down and you can explain it in plain language, like, Officers rushed into the scene to try and give first aid to victims that may have still been alive. So, again, that's how a footprint could have gotten there from one of the law enforcement officers. However, once you've established that there is a major crime scene, everyone is obviously uh, everyone's checked to see if there's any signs of life. Uh, no, Everybody's pronounced dead now. Uh, EMS is removed from the location. Everyone dons a uh, Tyvek and the booties and you try to go through it methodically. But. There's going to be contamination by uh, first responders, whether you like it or not. It's just one of the things that happens. It's it's just one of the cause and effect of doing an investigation. So uh, is there intentional contamination of evidence? No, there isn't. Is there accidental? Yes, uh, accidental because they had to walk in to check a pulse and see if a victim was still alive or not or different things like that. So, and again, sometimes you can just, you know, you're in and out of the location. You take off the booties. You forget to put them back on. You walk in, boom. That is another shoe print. And someone points it out. You put it back on, but it's too late. You've already gone back in and you may have brought something in or taken something out or left the footprint, like I just said. So things like that are going to happen, especially in such a high profile case as this with so many different agencies responding. And, you know, there was a big uh, cry for help in this investigation because it was a small town. So again, like I said, none of it's going to be intentional. It's just going to be there. And that's just the fact of it. Folks in the chat, I just want to let everyone know, you could say whatever you please, as long as it's respectful, you know, uh, the only time we, we encourage that we yeah encourage the only that. the only time we mind is if someone gets disrespectful and not just to us but to the other people in the chat. Everyone is entitled to to their opinion, you know. And if I see something glaringly incorrect, I will correct someone in the chat, but hopefully in a nice way. I'm not looking to put someone down or pretend that I know everything because I don't, you know. But just realize, it, it, as long as you're respectful in the chat, we have no problem with it. Ashley Banfield had a uh, a FBI uh, expert on um, electronics, and he spoke a little bit about what we're talking about tonight. Let's listen to a little bit of it. He's also a former prosecuting attorney. Mwah, chef's kiss. You are perfect, Clark, for this. Mwah. Get me sort of on and off the ledge on this, because I always want to know that there's lots of evidence. If you're going to bring a guy in and charge him with quadruple murder, I want to know that there's lots of really good evidence. This would seem like it would put a guy right in the room alongside the DNA on the knife sheath. But why might it not work? Let's let's just look at the other side. Why might this not work? Right. Uh, so your phone, as you know, when you're walking around with it, it is trying to talk to the rest of the world any number of ways, right? Um, Bluetooth and your cellular antenna and near-field communication. Um, 
but it doesn't necessarily mean that those attempted handshakes that you just referenced are necessarily being recorded. Not every single action that your phone takes is necessarily going to stick with that phone. If a forensic examiner were to look at it days, weeks, months later, um, yes, that handshake could have occurred, but is there going to be a record of it on the device that a forensic examiner can pull back? Okay, so let me take that one step further and I'm gonna just be you know, full disclosure here. I am a complete idiot when it comes to this stuff. I have to hit all the buttons a hundred times and then reset just to get something to work. But I do know this, my phone is connected to my Bluetooth speaker and my phone knows when I go from portrait to landscape and it keeps that as a record as I learned in the Murdoch trial. What if yes. Kaylee's speaker uh, was connected to her phone? Because presumably they're all up on the third floor, right? You're gonna have right. your phone upstairs when you go to bed, even if you're 50 feet away in the other bedroom. Will that perhaps keep a record? Uh, that would keep a record. And so have you ever noticed, you know, you'll spend a night in a hotel and you'll not come back to that hotel for months and then you'll go back to that hotel and it will automatically connect your phone back to Wi-Fi like you'd been there the day before. Um, your iPhone does keep a record of what Wi-Fi networks you've connected to, um, certain information about those networks, the name, the password, um, the last date and time, importantly, potentially for this case, the last date and time that that uh, phone was connected to that. So amazing, right? Potentially, Mike, I hate to use this expression because I overuse it, a smoking gun, you know? Potentially, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, potentially right? Potentially. And when, as Ashley Benfield talks about what an idiot she is with electronics, yeah. so am I, you know? And, uh, if I have any problem with the Bluetooth, it's that, I can never connect to the damn speaker, you know? And I, have, talking I have a sound stick, and when I go to play music while I'm exercising, uh, I, it's been connected, and when I walk away, it disconnects, and when I go back, like the next day to work out, I have to reconnect it, manually reconnect it by hitting the button, you know? And so there's a possibility that, as, as the gentleman, the FBI agent said, that it may not actually have uh, recorded an attempt. Um, we hope it did. And it, and it may have, but um, let's keep our fingers crossed that it did. But there's there's no guarantees. There's you know in this case there's no guarantees. I'm sure by this point they've got all that information. Uh, they're sitting on it, and it may be brought out at the um, like the autopsies at the probable cause hearing. That's going to be a treasure trove of information for the public on this case. I think one of the most important things to know though is if the phone is totally turned off game over it's not going anywhere it's not mm -hmm. going to hit it's not going to hit a cell site that's right it's not going to hit the wi-fi it's not going to hit the bluetooth mm -hmm. i'm talking about if it's turned off not put in airplane mode right the phone is physically off it's bill, bill i beg to differ with me because i saw an, uh, a thing on television there are ways even 100 turned off as long as there's power in the battery now i'm saying when the when the phone goes dead that's dead can't send out any signals. But if the power is turned off and there is a battery, every now and then it gives a little charge out or a little, it looks for a cell tower. I did see that and I will confirm that for sure 100%. And I believe it's only on certain smartphones. But when you have the phone, like they have Brian Kohlberger's phone, there's a treasure trove of information, like Mike just said, inside that phone. They will uh, dissect every place that that phone has been 
when with regard to uh, connecting to Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. And like that, uh, I think it was a CIA agent or FBI agent. Uh, what he said is that it will remember it for the next time you go back to that location. I've had that happen to me where it remembers uh, the Wi-Fi when I went in a restaurant or whatever it was uh, the next time I went there. So again, even in turned off mode, I'm 99.9% .9 sure that it still can, uh, what they did was they took a, a cell phone, they walked around Manhattan with the cell phone on and they were able to get it, you know, without making calls, an exact mapping of where the person went. Then they turned it off and they did the same thing and they, they were able to come up with several different locations on the same route that that person took with the phone. So even in the turned off mode, it, it sends out like a, what they call a trickle signal. It sends it out every once in a while. As long, like I said, is that there is power in the battery. Well, you know, I'm thrilled to hear that. I thought that this FBI said agent that uh, Banfield was talking to said if the phone's off, it's not gonna, it's not gonna uh, ping, it's not gonna hit the. Uh... But you know, if this could, could happen, look, I'm no expert at this, so I'm not gonna argue it. But it doesn't give know. a steady. In other words, when your phone is on, it's constantly connecting to the closest cell tower, and sometimes if the cell tower is overloaded, it'll send it to the next tower down, uh, like in a, in a place like Manhattan. I'll use a big city, but. The bottom line is, is that when you turn it off, it's not sending that that constant signal, but it does send what they believed that they called it a trickle signal, and it's not uh, it's like intermittently sent out. So again, we would need a, a cell phone expert. He obviously seems to be a cell phone expert. Maybe he didn't uh, phrase it the proper way, or, or I think it was only with certain models like the Samsung and I believe the iPhone. That's the two that I remember from the uh, thing that I. Well, saw. Lorraine Lawrence in the chat is saying, I don't know what her background is but she's saying you're right phil as long as the battery is powered so good i learned something new every day i hope i hope you're right um uh sharia keo let's send phil some valentine love if we don't need anything for <laughs> that's that's Thank great you. Thank uh, you so much. mma imagine if that home had a rear camera or front face i'm not sure this crime would have happened it did there was a rear camera and there was he was it was a ring doorbell i believe too yes he was caught, or not him, the white Hyundai Elantra was caught driving up the block and parking behind the house by that camera. So, you know, as we put these little snippets of evidence together, you know, there's a lot for a defense to try to create doubt on. Mike? Yeah, you know, the, the, the defense attorney has to do their best to uh, just point out some the presence of some reasonable doubt. Um in this case, you know, we're always looking at it from the police and prosecutor's point of view. And when we had Mike Vecchione on, you know, he was twisting our heads around a little bit, you know, because he was coming at us from a totally different perspective. But that's a good way to analyze the evidence in a very objective, uh, nonpartisan manner, because, you know, we're always looking at it from one point of view. But each and every little piece of evidence uh, for the prosecutor is going to lead to a conclusion that beyond reasonable doubt that he committed the crime. And the, the defense has to try and answer each and every bit of that evidence and cast doubt. You know, you can cast doubt on many of the uh, items of, of evidence that a prosecutor might have, but there's going to be some items that are irrefutable, a, a ring doorbell picture, um, DNA, um, the cell phone evidence, those sorts of things are, really difficult to counter. So the more little bits of information the prosecutor has, the greater likelihood of a conviction. You know, Mike, I just wanted to mention one thing, and this is in regards to 
DM allegedly seeing the killer or who she thought may have been the killer. And this sort of flies in the face of some of the new stuff we're learning now about she thought there was a party and this guy that walked by was at the party. But then she was made a statement that she thought this could have been the killer. He had bushy eyebrows. He had a mask on. One of the things I've learned in my police career, and I, I used to teach um, identification procedure at the criminal investigation course for the NYPD for six years. I wasn't an academy geek. They would bring me in off the street whenever, <laughs> whenever there was a criminal investigation course, which two, was two weeks long, and they would bring me in and I would teach the course. And one of the things I know about identification is you cannot sometimes see someone's face but you can see their gait, and that's spelled G-A-I-T, and you can see the way they move, and there's something about them that would enable you to identify them. I'm not saying that's not it's not scientific and it's not legally allowed, but I bet someone could pick someone out without necessarily seeing their whole face by looking at the whole the whole person. And and then if you ask the person, what was it that made you? identify it would be hard for them to tell you what it was that allowed them to identify that person without seeing the face phil you're shaking your head the, the reason i'm shaking my head is because there was a, a homicide case that i was involved in about 2016 where uh, a perpetrator was spotted on video uh the video didn't show a picture of his face, showed the uh, general description and stature of the individual. They brought the perpetrator's wife in and they uh, played the video and they asked her, do you recognize who that is on that video? And she said, yes, that's, and she named her husband. So again, uh, that was very powerful. This is the guy's wife saying that, yes, that is a picture. That's a video of my husband. He wasn't firing a gun or anything like that, but he was walking uh, just uh, before the murder took place and then they showed some video of him leaving running away and they showed picture of his vehicle she was able to identify all three of those videos as being her husband so again is it beyond a reasonable doubt jury's mind it was he was convicted and sent to jail mike what's what's your thoughts on that oh i agree um you i remember being as 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 a little kid hearing uh, people walk down uh the flight of stairs from bedroom to the kitchen and I could tell if it was my brother's gate, you know, from the, the, the cadence, my sister or my dad or my or my our mom. Everybody has a different way of walking, a different cadence, uh, different weights, how they come down the stairs. Yeah, that's you know, you, you can't it's hard to quantify it, you know, but there's a quality to it that uh, we all have that individual way of doing things. Our mannerisms, the way we walk, our, the speed with which we walk our our voices, our, our, uh, the language that we use, particular words and particular circumstances, accents, all of these things are, are something that people use to identify another human being, not just the but, face. But Mike, being an attorney, how could the prosecution use that in a case like this? Well, I'm, I'm thinking about it for as far as DM is concerned. Yeah, her initial impression might have been, and I, I have no reason to doubt that she wasn't telling the truth and as being as accurate as possible from her perspective, she actually probably in her mind thought this was some really weird person that was part of some sort of party or messing around walking out. Did he seem a little strange to her? Yes, but she didn't think enough of it. Um, 
later on, she realizes, oh, my God, that must have been the person because that's the only who did the crimes because that's the only person I saw at that time actually leaving the location. But um, as far as the accuracy of her uh, recollections, yeah, that's going to be affected by alcohol. But um, I don't think anybody has to uh, think that uh, she's telling nothing but the, the truth as she saw it at the time. And a prosecutor, I don't think will have a problem with it, explaining it to the jury um, and letting her explain to the jury what she was thinking. Uh, not at all. She's a 20, year, 20 or 21-year-old girl, a very young lady. Um, I think anyone on the jury that has teenage children or young children would completely understand the mindset in that, in that, uh, from what um, DM was saying. You know, Mike, I think also that um, one of the things that all listeners have to realize is that there's no doubt in my mind that the defense wants to interview her prior to the trial. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make it understood she can refuse to right. be interviewed by them. She doesn't have to let them interview her, which, I mean, if I was a witness in a case, I would refuse to be interviewed by uh, by the defense, especially in a case like this. Whether she was advised of that, I think she was probably advised of the fact that she, they didn't tell her not to talk to them. They just said, you have a right not to talk to them. Yeah, I think Mike Mechion made that, uh, that point yeah. uh, when he was on the show that uh, if you tell them not to talk to them, that would be prejudicial to the defense. So again, <clears throat> she has the right to uh, not talk to uh, any investigators from the defense team. And I think that they would probably, based on the gag order, strongly advise her, do not talk to the press in any way, shape, or form. So again, uh, you have the opportunity to talk to the defense team if you want to, but I would think uh, it would be advised, advised not to talk to them. 100%. Phil, why don't you do this quick commercial for Joe Murray? Joe Murray, attorney at law, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big supporter of police off the cuff, real crime stories. And he is a terrific criminal defense attorney. If you're in need of his services, you have his numbers there. You know, folks, one of the things we actually spoke about it, um, Mike and I, the last time we, we did a show was that Brian Koberger was in hot water at the Washington State University. Uh, in September and October of this year, he had basically been warned by his supervisors. He had a TA position. That's a teaching assistant position. And all of that stuff seems to be connected. The, the funding he would get for his PhD program, his housing, and the money he was paid as a teaching assistant, he depended on that in order to continue his education. Except it became very clear that he wasn't living up to his end of the bargain and they, the, the administration had gotten lots of complaints about Brian Koberger, specifically in the way he treated females differently than he treated males. He was a little bit harsh. He was strange. Um, 
So this was in September and October. We all know the, the murders occurred November 13th, and he wasn't fired from that position till December. However, this cauldron was heating up, and it, it, it <clears throat> potentially could have been one of the reasons that the whole lid blew off the pot and what occurred on November 13th occurred. Mike, your, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, looking back at the timeline, he arrives in August. Within four weeks, uh, there's no honeymoon period with his students. Within four weeks, these students are going to the faculty uh, and administration and complaining um, about his harsh treatment uh, of and been dismissive attitude towards the students, especially the females. Um, he's spoken to uh, twice with uh, by Dr. Snyder, who was his supervisor. Yeah, they spoke to they spoke twice in uh, middle and at the end of October. Um, they uh, he actually had a, what they call a confrontation with with Dr. Snyder, probably a probably language a pissing match. And Dr. Snyder, you know, you know, said, this is it. I'm, I'm going to drop the hammer. You're on a probation right now. You have to be much more of a professional teacher. You're a better researcher. You have your own courses that you're taking in addition to teaching other courses. So he had a full plate and he was it seemed to be that, uh, you know, he was really just decompensating. And my working theory is that him looking at his future at WSU, he knew it was not bright. Once they put you on a uh, like a probationary sort of, you know, um, period, uh, he probably realized that he might get fired by the end of the semester or maybe the latest at the end of the spring semester. And um, right around that time, we believe in the end of October, he started to um, follow or um, a direct message, uh, perhaps Ms. Consalvis. Um, then the homicide occurs uh, November 13th. Um, he comes back uh, to, to school. He's still doing his duties. He has another, a third confrontation with Dr. Snyder. And uh, like two weeks later, while he's a suspect and nobody knows yet that he's going to be arrested, um, it is on its own initiative, WSU uh, faculty decide to get together and they're like, you know, what? we've had it with uh, Mr. Koberger. He doesn't listen and uh, he's not professional and we can't continue to fund him, fund his position, fund his studies here. And so it's quite interesting, the parallel between getting there uh, in August and, and, and leaving and being fired in December and his, the decompensation he has with the public around him, especially the females. And, you know, the working theory I have is that uh, by killing uh, females, he killed symbolically the people who were killed, he believes were killing his, his chances of success, you know, once again, being re rejected especially by females. And this time it was going to just completely destroy his dreams of being in a PhD program. I doubt if you get fired from a PhD program that you're going to be accepted into another PhD program. And that's a working theory I have right now is that the, the two working together uh, just seem to have caught, have, has, you know, just uh, ended up in that one night of uh, extreme violence. You know, Mike, I, one of the things, and, and you're, you're a college professor. I taught college for 10 and a half years. 
One of the things you know that everything you say in a classroom, basically you're on stage. Mm -hmm. And if any of your students disagree with what you say, they take the little walk to the uh, president of the college's office or your supervisors mm -hmm. above you and, and they complain about you. Sure. And I'm sure people complained mm -hmm. about me. Some people said I fooled around too much. I was told too many jokes in class, you know. And I was like, well, that's my style. If they don't like it, there's other teachers that are more serious. And I was serious, but I used humor to try to get the uh, the lesson plan across. And I know, Mike, you're much more warm where I we both taught together. You yeah. were a much stricter teacher than I was. You were way stricter. And you that came back to you, didn't it? Yeah, you know, there are times when you ask students to, you know, dig deep. Try to try to think hard, and then you explain a concept to them, and then you take this concept, and then you try to turn it into explain it in a way that's more concrete. You talk about criminal law, so you'll talk about a particular concept, mens rea, actus reus, you know, criminal activity, that sort of thing, and then you try to give an example from your your career, and you try to, and then when you're talking about you know criminal defenses, you try to ask students to see things from both the prosecutor's side and then also the defendant's side. And sometimes they don't wanna do that. Uh, it makes It's difficult because you're dealing with young people who don't really have a grounding in criminal law or law, any kind of law, and you're asking them to see both sides of an issue. Um, and sometimes you have to use a little humor because as police officers, you know, that's how you survive sometimes out on the street. You have to have uh, maybe a, uh, 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 maybe a, uh, what they call like a black comedy sense of humor just to get through some of the crime scenes that you go through. You and know, like we use that, we use that even with perps, we would make them laugh, you know, so they don't kill us. We, instead, you would try to make them laugh, use your, all your instincts. That's why huh? I, when I took acting classes, so many acting teachers says, you're a cop. You should be a natural actor because that's what you do. All, and they're so right. You do use everything you have to keep yourself safe. And right. whether it's acting or humor or whatever you use in film, you know it's true. Absolutely, 100%. I just want to uh, get a little more specific. I agree with everything that Mike said. I just want to get a little bit more specific. Regarding the September 23rd, 2022 verbal altercation with Professor John Snyder, there was a meeting held with WSU officials to discuss. Now listen to this state statement that they make. The norms of professional behavior, that he failed to meet the conditions required to maintain his funding. So again, that's September. Uh, he's put on notice. Now, uh, we had the other uh, two interactions back in, uh, in October. And then just 11 days before the murders take place, on November 2nd, 2022, uh, prior to the killing, he meets with uh, department officials again to discuss an improvement plan. That's 11 days before the murder. This may have been the thing that really set him off, that, that set the wheels in motion to commit these horrible and heinous uh murders. And again, in December, the professions inform him that multiple fe uh, female students feel uncomfortable. One incident where BK followed a woman to her car. Uh, again, it's um, it's a, just a, a whole litany of uh, things that took place uh, prior to, I call it the preclusive, the precluding facts. And then we have the facts that happen after uh, the murders take place. Again, uh, you're getting a, a sort of a, a rundown of what may have been uh, going through Brian's mind uh, prior to all of this uh, 
horrific uh, crime that took place. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and we also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font. They support our channel. So the, the termination letter that he got in December was well after the fact. The murders had already been uh, been committed. However, Brian Koberger's life was falling apart as he knew it. And he also, let's face it, he was meant to, I believe he's mentally ill. He had some mental health issues, definitely. And, you know, if a normal person's world starts falling apart like this, I don't think they're going to go out and kill four people. You know, they may take it badly and they may take it harshly, but they're not going to act out and kill four people. So he had some serious, serious mental health issues. The mental health issues to me are if you can rationalize committing four horrific murders, you're mentally ill. I mean, he might not be considered insane where he's unable to perceive what uh, the difference between right and wrong is. But he was able to rationalize in his mind that he's going to go out and commit these murders. Perhaps he was targeting just two of the individuals and then the other four were collateral to the whole thing. But to rationalize that, you have to be pretty mentally ill. Absolutely. JC, as said earlier, the only story that the public has been told is the state story. We have never heard DM's story from her own mouth. We cannot truly say what she uh, said or didn't say right now. JC, that's correct, but the the, the statement that she uh, gave to the, the the state, as you say, is 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 written down and it's memorialized. So that statement will be read in a court of law, and she will also undoubtedly testify if this case does in fact go to trial. There very right. well may be a video uh, uh, historical notification. You know, they may memorialize that with a videotape too as well, which happens a lot of time in uh, homicide investigations. District Attorney's Office wants to memorialize the interview with a videotape. So especially as a key witness in a case, like that, I think it's very possible that there is a video of that. And, uh, you know, uh, listen, at the moment that the police are first called, uh, it's complete, total chaos, frantic, uh, panic, uh, traumatic uh, incident has just taken place. So uh, later on down the line, when a person has been made to calm down and is able to go through the story with investigators, that's when they would uh, videotape the statement. Mike. Yeah, uh, regarding DM, yeah, we don't know yet. She'll be uh, a witness, I'm sure, at the uh, preliminary hearing, uh, probable cause hearing in uh, June. Uh, and I don't think that uh, the defense would be able to score a lot of points with the judge at that at that time, because there's only going to be a judge in the in the courtroom judging whether or not there is probable cause. And the same thing at trial. Um, She'll she'll come across the worst she would come across would be a, a confused young uh, woman who didn't act in a way that more older, more mature people might have thought she should have act acted. But um, the defense would have to tread very lightly because, the you're, you know, if you don't if you don't if you think she's an ineffective prosecution witness, you're not going to say much to her as a defense attorney. If you think she's a great prosecution witness, you still have to tread lightly because you don't want to 
anger the jury. And even after she gets on and off the stand, then you're gonna have to start, you're gonna have the police officers come, the first responders come, you're gonna have the medical examiner people there. So even if she doesn't seem to be the the the, the sharpest, uh, you know, consistent uh, witness you could you could hope for, there's gonna be so many other witnesses that are gonna be placing Kohlberger there. So I, I don't see anything wrong with uh, DM's statements at all. They they seem confused. We don't know what they are, but in June we'll know. Pauline Robb, can a defense attorney subpoena witness from the prosecution side or just across during trial? Well, a defense attorney doesn't have to subpoena. They could just give their intention of interviewing such and such witness that is a prosecution witness. If it's a witness out of left field and the person doesn't want to appear in court, yes, they may have to subpoena that witness. But if it's a witness that the prosecution already has on the witness list, Pauline, I believe there's no necessity to subpoena and uh, attorney Mike there is shaking his head. Yep. So I got one right. There you got it. Yeah. Defense attorneys have the right for, to uh, issue subpoenas for documents and people. Um, but if someone's, or, and then any witnesses that come in on the prosecutor side during the beginning of the trial, the prosecutor's case in chief, the defense always has the right to cross examine them. And you know, the, the prosecutor is also before the witnesses get there in court, the prosecutor is going to probably give the defense attorney the list of witnesses that they plan on calling in a particular order to be uh, even more fair to the defense attorney. So, yeah, the uh, defense is going to have the uh, ability to uh, call, uh, call, cross-examine, interview all those witnesses. Absolutely. Uh, Paul, was it the FBI or the PA state police who saw BK dump trash into the neighbor's trash? Do you believe that this act was caught on film? I believe it was probably the FBI and the PA state police. And I would probably uh, guess, heavily guess that it was probably videotaped with a powerful camera from a distance away. Because apparently they also had a drone above that house that was uh, filming the house. So, yeah, I think they have it. They have all of those things covered. And uh, I think that will also be pretty damn powerful evidence. You, you, you show up on a surveillance of this nature, you're going to have a video camera standing by and ready to go. And the minute he comes out of the house or anyone appears from that house, you're clicking that video camera on. I would say that that's a very good bet that the uh, FBI or the Pennsylvania State Police did have uh, video surveillance going at that location. Someone, Frank Marsha said, Bill, you're almost as good as Joe Murray. And that's without the law degree. Thank, <laughs> thanks, Frank Marsha. Appreciate that. Joe's going to have to... <laughs> He's going to have to get all the money back from his student loans for to get that law degree. You know, it's, it's, it's no joke. You know, the knowledge that you get, and I know like Mike is so humble about it, but studying to get a law degree, I mean, you probably spend at least the first year never going out because your nose is always in a book and trying to memorize cases and facts and circumstances. But that's what really exercises your mind wrote memorization. There's something to that. And when it seems students in this day and age, and not to criticize them back in my day, but it seems like students now, they don't want to learn by rote. They don't want to have to memorize stuff. And, you know, even on our promotion exams, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, it was all rote memorization. And that is the most horrible type of studying to do, but it's necessary. And it actually commits to your mind. And especially if you use things like acronyms, like uh, 
uh, Professor Dr. Debbie Goodman the other day thanked me. She said, Bill, thanks for Bard. And I go, what do you mean? She goes, beyond a reasonable doubt. She goes, all my students are using it right now as an acronym. I go, oh, really? From this show? <laughs> I felt so proud. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, Mike, is that true that students don't want to learn by road anymore? Um, I think at, at the college level, um, they don't have the, uh, the way <clears throat> things are taught nowadays in, in grammar school, the primary education. They don't, they don't seem to do that as much from what I could see. So when you get to them to college, um, they have difficulty memorizing, memorizing things. And uh, they're not, because they're not used to it, you know? Um, but yeah, the first year of law school, that is over overwhelming. Um, you're just drinking coffee, you know, cups of coffee this big, Pepsi's, the leaders of Pepsi. Uh, mm -hmm. is, uh, you look like a raccoon with your eyes, well, you know, well, because you're not sleeping. It's, but you know what? It's it's great basic training because at that point, the second and third year, you're you're you know you're really doing a lot more. But that first year, it's overwhelming. You know, Mike, I remember to this day, in sixth grade, our teacher made us every single kid in the class made us memorize "If" by Rudyard Kipling, oh, that poem, oh, and we had to yeah. stand up in front of the class. And recite it. And it was so much, you know, if you can keep your head about you and those right. around you're losing theirs and blaming it. I mean, that's the only thing I remember to this day. But every and I remember this girl went up there. I won't say her name because she's probably still around. And she just starts looking at everybody. And she just burst into tears. Oh. <laughs> and, and then she didn't have to read it. I was like, I'm going to try that one too. Maybe <laughs> I won't have to read it either. What's but the I name of it, Bill? What's the name of the poem? Uh, it's it's a very famous poem, "If" by Rudyard Kipling. I got to check very, that very out. It's great. Poem. Yeah, that'll be my homework for tonight. It's not a short poem either, no. and it was not easy to do. And um, I did do it, but uh, it was it was it was a struggle, you know. And I think that that later on, years later, that helps you that in your life that you were forced to do something like that. Yeah. You, you know, Billy, uh, a lot of the legal stuff that we are, I would say, pretty much professional on is stuff that we've learned over the years. But once you're starting to get, uh, get into the stuff like uh, Professor Mike was just saying, Sergeant Mike, about the Mendra and this and that, that's where I kind of get into the weeds a little bit. But, you know, from from our experience of working with prosecutors, uh, making arrests, going to trial, all the criminal stuff. And then, like you said, we learned something new every day. We learned about uh, phone technology today that we didn't know about and uh, all the different things. But I did notice that before I go on the air, a lot of times I write out notes, specific things. And like you said, it's in my memory because I wrote it out. And look at Legal Eagle. She's given us some notes here. Issue, law, application, conclude. <laughs> Does that ring a bell, Mike? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember uh, uh, briefing cases, you know. I used to use the FIRAC method, facts, issues, rules, analysis, analysis, and conclusion. There's all kinds of acronyms. And I had like five different color markers, one for facts, one for issues, one for rules, one for analysis, one for conclusion. Oh, yeah. Those were the days. Oh yeah, you know, and they're all like, Mike's starting to sweat. Oh, oh. You know, get Mike, out the big coffee, Mike. It's it's when I when I was teaching, I I went over the concept of forfeiture, okay. and the kids were like, "What is forfeiture?" 
I go, to, I go. that's when they take your shit. So every time I brought up forfeiture, someone in the back would go, that's when they take your shit. I go, well, that's not really what the forfeiture means. <laughs> yeah, I took that as a definition. I go, all right. That's the I'll street version it. of forfeiture. The they took my <laughs> shit, man. <laughs> Forfeiture's when they take your shit. So I, I you know. I should have been slapped on the hand, and that's probably where they said Cannon fools around too much. You know, he plays too much. They used to say. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, from all the courses that I went through on the job, the people that were too serious, they they kind of you zone out. You know, maybe not go to sleep, but you zone out. When you have a little bit of levity and you have a a, a person with a personality, given the uh, you know given the the course or you know given the the speech, it's a lot easier to follow along. You know. You know, I always felt that using humor in teaching was huge. And, and it was kids you kept. Even when I taught the criminal investigation course at the police academy, people loved my stories and they loved when I made them funny. And they would be like, I, I was myself and this female lieutenant. Every single time we taught at CIC, we were voted number one and number two of the best instructors at CIC. Uh, every single year I was there. So Humor does come into it. Yeah, humor comes into it. And it keeps, it keeps you engaged because you're waiting for the next funny thing so you can laugh. Yeah, everybody loves to laugh. So, absolutely. You know, folks, we sort of got off track a little bit, but I think it's important to, too to keep you guys interested and tell some stories here. And uh, Cynthia Gaines, thank you for the $5 super chat. Sergeant Bill, we had to memorize and recite the poem, The Road Less Traveled by Robert Frost. Wow, that sounds like. I know the, the name of the poem. I don't know the poem. And I think that, you know, I did a monologue um, in my acting class. And it was it was from the it was a football movie where Al Pacino plays the the, um, the coach, the head coach. And he yeah. talks to the team. And the monologue was like three to five minutes long. We fight for each inch. And this team, we fight. You know, it was one of those rah-rah speeches. And I did it. It was like three to five minutes. Maybe it was more like four to five minutes long. And it was really hard to do. And actually, if you watch the Super Bowl, Serena Williams did that little speech in that commercial. That was from that monologue. It was a little snippet from that monologue. I, I recognized it right away. But when you can do it and when you can memorize, especially when you're older, which it's much more difficult to memorize stuff as you get older, believe it or not, you lose a few brain cells. And... Um, it's you sort of feel good that you memorized all of that stuff. And it's not when you memorize something in an acting class, it's not just you're not just reciting it, you're acting it out. So it's it's that much tougher to do. Guys, I hope we didn't uh, disinterest you by getting off track a little bit. But this case is fascinating and we're going to stay with it right till the, the very end. And um, we have the most respect. Um, we always have to mention and I'll put it on the screen. Phil, you can uh, recite it. Yes, uh, Madison Mogan, 21 years old, Kaylee Gonzalez, 21 years old, Ethan Chapin, 20 years old, and Zanner Kernoodle, 20 years old. May their souls rest in peace. There is no Valentine's Day for the families of these young students that were taken way too soon. Just keep them in your thoughts and prayers. We've mentioned uh, BK's name several times, so we just feel it's fitting to be a little serious at this point and mention the names of the victims of the University of Idaho. Uh, and may they rest in peace. Absolutely. Mike, final thoughts. Yeah, just for, to, for all the viewers, just to be patient with the case. We're going to see a lot more uh, in in June. Uh, have have confidence 
in the FBI, the Idaho State Police, Moscow State Police, and uh, keep the uh, the victims and their families in your prayers. Absolutely. Folks, I want to uh, thank everyone for tuning in tonight, especially on this Valentine's night. I hope you had uh, a good uh, Valentine's day or night and that uh, you uh, gave a hug or a kiss to your, uh, your loved one. And um, thanks again for tuning in and God bless. Stay safe, everyone. Valentine's kiss. Just ain't enough